What is up? Welcome back to Stacking Slabs. This is your hobby content alternative. I'm your host, Brett McGrath. I collect sports cards. I like collecting sports cards. And I also have this podcast to talk about collecting sports cards. But it's not just me. I bring on other collectors. And that's what we're doing today. I got my man, Charm City Tim, in the house. Unlock, new character, first time on the show. We are going to be talking about his Hall of Fame PC, why he started it, what he's found, who he's connecting with. He has got a story about a Ray Lewis 101 that I can't wait to share with all of you. If you're liking what you're hearing over here, follow, subscribe, hit all the buttons, but you know the drill. Most importantly, tell a damn friend that you're enjoying the Stacking Slabs podcast. Without further ado, let's kick it to the conversation. All right, everybody, excited about this conversation um, mentioned at the top. I love bringing on new collectors that I haven't had on before. Um, I'm joined by Tim. You can find him on Instagram at Charm City Tim. I was looking at his page. We've been interacting for quite some time. Uh, he always has some good thoughts just overall with collecting and in the hobby. Um, he's got a Hall of Fame collection, also a big Ravens fan and has got a Ravens collection. So we're going to talk about maybe both sides, but without further ado, Tim, welcome. How are you? I'm good, Brett. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So maybe we we were just a little peek behind the curtain. We were talking a little bit about Lamar Jackson uh, before we hit record. Uh, maybe take the listeners in just from a, a, a hardcore Ravens fan perspective. This drama that uh, I every podcast I listened to, there was Lamar Jackson's going to do this. Lamar Jackson's going to do that. Now he is officially back as a Baltimore Raven. I know there's a moment as a Colts fan where I was like, all right, we're going to get Lamar Jackson. So I think a lot of teams were kind of in that mode. But talk me through a little bit about just like what's going on in your head with Lamar Jackson and the Ravens going into next season. I think he really divided the fan base over the last couple of years. Uh, he's made some great progress since his rookie year when he came in and he had that, that stigma of he's just a running quarterback. He'll never be a passer. And he hired his own quarterback coach to work with. Uh, he's shown signs of developing as a passer, but then he regresses. I feel like the fan base has been very split and kind of sitting out parts of the season due to injury. When some people thought that he was able to tough through it, definitely didn't help his case at all. And not having an agent uh, also really worked against him. I know the media was exhausted around here, and they would they would say so on on radio shows and and news reports that it just became exhausting to talk about every day because there really were no developments. It was a lot of he said, she said, um, you know, a lot of leaks into the media from his camp, and then from the Ravens camp. So you never really knew what to believe. Does he really want a guaranteed contract? But I think seeing the Jalen Hurts deal get done, knowing that he's not going to get that Deshaun Watson money, I think kind of brought him back down to earth. And Eric DaCosta said shortly after the Hurts deal was done that Lamar reached out to him late one night and said, I think we can get something done. And I think uh, a lot of the fan base, you know, breathed a sigh of relief when that happened. Only because, you know, you never want your star quarterback going into the offseason uh, with uncertainty, especially in a, a critical year like this where you have a new offensive coordinator coming in. You have Odell Beckham coming in, uh, we drafted Zay Flowers, wide receiver in the first round. So it's really important for him to be there. And, you know, not having that hanging over our heads now is, is a big relief. 
Yeah, Zay Flowers was he was on my board uh, as a I'd I'd like to see him wear Colts blue. Um, we ended up with Downs from North Carolina, which I think he's exciting too. But uh, it seems to me that Lamar Jackson entering this situation is probably getting ready, new offensive system, getting ready to work with probably the best receiving core that he's ever had. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Um, you know, coming into his first year as a starter, the Ravens drafted. Hollywood Brown, which I, from what I heard, uh, was handpicked by Lamar. And it was tough because now you see guys like AJ Brown and DK Metcalf and Debo Samuel and, uh, Terry McLaurin who were all drafted behind him. And you start looking at the what ifs, but, uh, uh, he, he felt like he wanted the ball a little bit more. And, uh, Baltimore is not known to be a passing offense. We're a, a pound the rock and play good defense type of team. Uh, I think now you're going to see a little bit of a transition in that uh, with this new offensive coordinator, but yeah, definitely, uh, definitely has the most amount of talent, even though Beckham, you know, coming off of two ACLs, you don't really know what you're going to get. And um, Rashad Bateman, our other first round pick has been injured the last two seasons, hasn't been able to finish a year, but he's shown flashes of being that number one guy. So it'll definitely be interesting uh, coupled with Mark Andrews, who's an all pro tight end. Um, Isaiah likely really came on as a rookie tight end last year and, you know, bringing back JK Dobbins and Gus Edwards, along with a good offensive line. I think it's, you know, there's no more excuses. It's time for him to show up and prove that he earned this deal that he just got. Yeah. You kind of need that horsepower these days. It's it, the black and blue division. It's now becoming, uh, it was pound the ball and now it, it'll be fun to watch that division grow. Cause you see, you know, what the Bengals are doing and what, what it appears that the Ravens direction they're going, we might see some uh, aerial attack, which is not what we're used to in the North. Yeah. It's, it's crazy because uh, when I first started watching football right around 99, 2000, you know, the, the passing attack was just starting to catch on with the greatest show on turf with the, the St. Louis Rams Peyton Manning was kind of coming into his own as a starter. So it really was only a couple of teams that were that were throwing the ball around like that. Every other team had these big uh, workhorse running backs, Eddie George, Fred Taylor, Jerome Bettis, uh, Jamal Lewis, Corey Dillon, and that's just the Ravens division. Uh, so lots of big backs, and you definitely saw a shift in the uh, offensive philosophy somewhere around the mid-2000s when the rules starts to change. Definitely. And I know we're going to probably spend majority of the time talking about your hall of fame collection, but I be remiss to not talk about the Ravens side of your collection first, maybe talk a little bit about, was it the Ravens that got you into collecting cards or uh, talk to me a little bit about the backstory. It wasn't the Ravens because growing up in Baltimore, um, we didn't have a football team when I was growing up. The Ravens didn't come to town until 1996. I was nine years old. So to fill that gap, you know, baseball was my first love. Uh, the Orioles were actually competitive back then. And uh, that was before they fell off a cliff for 20 years. But uh, they were making the playoffs. And everyone around here was was worshiping the ground that Cal Ripken walked on around the 21-31 time. I was always a Ken Griffey Jr. fan. I was trading my Cal Ripkins for my friend's Griffey Jr. cards. It was also right around the time that Pogs took over the 90s. Um, so I collected those as well. And I uh, had an older brother who also got me into collecting. So it was all baseball and, and Pogs up until like 96. And then when the Ravens came to town, I kind of discovered football for the first time and slowly got into it, but still was uh, focusing on baseball. 
And then right around 99, the Ravens were starting to build a little bit of momentum. And I started to get into a little bit more. Uh, my dad watched every game and kind of brought me into that that fandom. And in 2000, the Ravens won the Super Bowl, as many people know. And that was, you know, when I really started watching them. So I've been hooked ever since. As far as collecting wise, though, I started out with Ravens with football. And then I kind of just collected everything, whatever caught my eye. I was a, a shiny card fan. So your tops chrome, your tops finest, your Bowman's best, uh, Bowman chrome, all that kind of stuff was was what I gravitated towards. And I would always ride my bike with my friends down to the local card shop. And uh, I really started to hang out there a lot. And the owner took a liking to me and saw that I was passionate about collecting and offered me a job there, actually, when I was only like 13 or 14 years old, kind of under the table deal, just helped me out here and there. He had a, a disability, so he wasn't able to move around like he wanted to. So I really got him organized and got into it. and started building a lot of relationships with the customers, a lot of older guys that have been collecting for, you know, 20, 30 years and got a lot of great advice, um, stuff that, you know, it's just not passed around enough in the hobby. And they took me under their wing and, and kind of showed me how to build a collection the right way and kind of gave me a little bit of direction because I was all over the place. I was just collecting offense, defense, you know, it didn't matter. I just, I just wanted it all. And they kind of honed me in on, you know, choose a few players that you really like to follow, especially guys that are kind of headed on that Hall of Fame path. And uh, that's what really got me started. And then around 2000, there was a set called Fleer Greats of the Game, which um, featured mostly retired players. And I think it had some rookies sprinkled in there. And I remember opening some packs of that and just reading the little bios on the back of the card, just being fascinated by what I was reading. And, uh, you know, I would go home and watch in the early days of NFL network, they had these, um, you know, player bios. They were like 30 minutes at a time from NFL films. And I was just captivated by these things. I would watch like red Grange and Bronco Nagurski and players like that, that you really don't hear about too much. And, uh, I think ESPN did a, a series called, uh, sports centuries, greatest athletes. And I remember watching some stuff on there and really just kind of learning more about the game, the history of it. And, and really developing an appreciation for the older guys. And not only that, but, you know, Baltimore did have the Baltimore Colts uh, before they moved out to Indianapolis. And uh, from all of my older relatives, I got to hear stories about Johnny Unitas and Raymond Berry, Gino Marchetti, Lenny Moore, Art Donovan. So from an, a younger age, I always had an appreciation for the older guys. Um, and then in about 2003, I was opening packs of Donruss Elite Football, and I pulled a Jim Thorpe game-worn jacket card. And I just remember everyone in the shop going crazy over it because no one had ever seen anything like that before. And I didn't really know much about Jim Thorpe at the time, but it kind of inspired me to go home and really do my research. And from there on, it kind of lit the flame for my Hall of Fame collection. I love it. So I think one of the things that's underrated, and you touched on it a little bit, is that kind of that tribal knowledge you get from just like being in a card shop and um, having conversations with people that have been doing it longer than you. I feel like no matter what, no matter how long you've been collecting, there's always someone who's been doing it longer and just having a conversation you can probably learn from. Um, If we rewind the tape back to those days, you mentioned like focus on a few players 
uh, that was uh, knowledge passed down. Was there anything else specifically you can remember just in those early days of those types of conversations that kind of set you on this track of Hall of Fame collecting? I, I do remember a conversation with an older gentleman that was there and he was telling me about how, you know, in today's football, the, you know, the quarterback gets the play called into their ear. You know, they're always constantly told what to do. And, and he said, Johnny Unitas never had that. You know, he went out there, he looked at the defense, he read the defense and he called the play at the line of scrimmage. Um, he didn't have an offensive coordinator telling him what plays to run. And he, and he kind of likened Peyton Manning to that. He said, you know, Peyton, you see him audibling all the time at the line. And he was telling me how impressed he was. And that kind of started my, my Peyton Manning fandom as well, um, which is sacrilegious here in Baltimore because <laughs> I was told from a young age, you do not root for the Colts uh, now that they <laughs> left. So, yeah, I was always a, a closet Colts admirer. I loved Marvin Harrison, Reggie Wayne, and, and Edron James, but yeah, especially Peyton Manning. I just really admired the way he played the game. I thought he always played the game the, the right way, and he was big in in supporting Johnny Unitas as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a game that I think when Johnny passed, uh, he wore the the high top black cleats in his honor, and you could just tell Peyton, you know, his class act all the way. You're earning definitely bonus points with me, uh, even being a Ravens fan, uh, talking high about Peyton. Uh, So when we think about Hall of Fame collecting, I think it's it's fun, right? There's there's so many players, so many stories, so many cards. Maybe describe the approach that you've taken to your Hall of Fame collecting. Like, do you have rules, qualifiers in place? Talk a little bit about that. Well, one of the main things that I focus on is the players. You know, there's Hall of Fame coaches, contributors, and they're great. You know, I respect them, respect them all a great deal, but I didn't want to focus on all of them because they do have autographs out there and they do have cards. Um, but I chose to only pick a couple coaches like your Vince Lombardi's, your George Hallis, your John Madden. And I wanted to get autographs from those guys, Bill Walsh, uh, real innovators of the game and, and guys that, you know, when I think of football, those are the names that come to mind. But I mainly wanted to focus on the players. And I started out collecting position players. Uh, not that I didn't respect offensive linemen and special teams guys, but, you know, it's hard to collect everything, you know. But I was having a conversation with fellow Hall of Fame collector on Instagram, and we were talking about how neat it would be to kind of have an autograph from every person in the Hall of Fame. And while he decided to go after everyone, you know, I focus my attention on just the players. Uh, so it started out with, you know, your quarterbacks, your receivers, and from collecting from, you know, basically 99, 2000, I had about 21 year head start on, uh, you know, building this collection. I already had a lot of the guys that I was targeting. So I really sat down and looked at it and I was like, man, I have like a third of, of the entire Hall of Fame already. So without even trying, you know, I'm already off to a great start. And then he and I kind of bounced off of each other and, and started building our collections and uh, took about a year for me to get most of what I would call the easy ones. There's definitely some Hall of Famers out there that have next to nothing. And, you know, that's part of the fun of the chase is guys that don't really have, but maybe a couple cut autos and they're limited to sometimes one of ones or, or maybe out of five. And some of those I, I still haven't seen to this day. So just the chase, the the excitement of knowing that this could take 20 years to finally come complete. But uh, one of my sub projects for the Hall of Fame was the top 100 players of all time. I think it was like three years ago now. 
they put it out as voted on by guys like Bill Belichick and and former NFL Hall of Famers themselves. And I thought, how realistic is it to actually get an autograph from the top 100 players of all time? And come to find out, there's really only one that doesn't have anything at all, and that's Bill Hewitt. Uh, he was a two-way player. I think he played for the Steelers and the Eagles. Passed away, I, I want to say, like in the early 70s. So it really doesn't have any autographs out there. Uh, no no pack certified cards for sure. If anything, he might have like an index card or, or like a letter or something like that. So I was able to get 99 out of 100, and which the other one not really being possible. So that kind of really kick-started my journey. And as I was going, I was picking up kind of lesser guys. And now I'm pretty much down to uh, the tougher ones, guys that you don't really see, you know, like the offensive linemen that most people don't even, you know, know their their names or or what they did if you if you mentioned them so it's pretty exciting and then of course every year you get six or seven more added to the list and um, you know now I'm pretty fortunate that I collected a lot of those guys that are getting enshrined now so usually every year there's one or two that that I need but yeah I'm I'm picking away at it so it's it's a fun project but I know it's going to take many more years to actually complete Okay. I have, there's so many follow-ups. I have the one I want to know. So 90, 99 out of the hundred greatest, like just let us into the process that you went through. Obviously, like you've been collecting forever. So you, there was this subset of players that you already had cards. You could already check the box, but then I would imagine there's a chunk that you needed to go pursue. Like what was your method and avenue for making sure that you filled those gaps and then like what kind of timeline are we talking about for you to get to the 99 cards uh well with having most of them already you know it didn't take long uh, first mm-hmm. thing i did, i made a list uh, i have ocd so i love making lists <laughs> and uh you know i started crossing off highlighting the ones that i already had and then it started out you know every week i'd pick i'd pick a handful of guys and i'd, I'd search for what's out there and, uh, you know, it was pretty easy for me because I'm, I'm pretty picky. So I know right away, like if a guy has 50 different autograph cards, I know, you know, there's probably five or six that I'm, that I'm really targeting. And, you know, most of them are pretty readily available out there. There weren't many that were really hard to find. There are some that, you know, pop up once every couple of years. And, you know, I was very fortunate to, to be able to win some of those. But yeah, and it, it was a big challenge at first, just kind of figuring out, you know, you got to climb up this mountain, but first you got to take that first step and, you know, where to even start. So what I did was just pick a, cu- a couple guys here and there every week and go after key cards that I saw them that I liked. I uh, tried to get as many on-card autos as I could. Um, obviously there, there's not one card available for every player, but like, I don't mind cut autos. I know some people don't like them, but to me, I don't mind them. And then I did have a pet peeve for many years that I would never buy like PSA DNA slab autos. But I kind of realized that, you know, in order to complete this project, I'm going to have to do it. Um, so I had to buy three or four of those, and it kind of totally changed my viewpoints on it. Once I got them in hand, I looked at myself in the mirror, and I'm like, all these years I went based off of what other people say about these cards that, you know, they're not packed pulled, so they're not, you know, authentic or they're not, they're not real. But, you know, I feel like I have a pretty good gauge on, on what their autographs look like. And then sometimes you've got to think to yourself, who would who would fake, you know, this autograph on this beat up vintage card, you know, with the old ballpoint pen? Like the chances of it being fake are pretty slim. So, yeah, it actually opened up my eyes to a whole new uh, category of my collection that that now I'm 
Uh, I still don't try to focus on those, but a guy like Emlyn Tunnell, who is one of my favorite uh, old school players, uh, he only has a couple cut autos and uh, they, they never surface. So I went with an on-card vintage slabbed auto and I couldn't be happier with it. You know, the autograph is framed beautifully uh, on the card. It was a 58 tops. So uh, yeah, I made an exception and it turns out that I actually really like it. So every year you alluded to this, but every year, right, there's a new uh, class that's inducted. And you mentioned just based on your collecting, a lot of the times you already have some of these cards, but like, is that an like a big deal? Like, is the reveal a big deal for you? Like, cause just it, 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 it has to ignite new activity for you. So maybe talk a lot, a little bit about like, you know, going, they go through and they knock on their houses and they, they, they've made it a big deal over social media over the years, but talk a little bit about that. Like, will you, once you see that, will you immediately go out on your next hunt or, or do you wait? What, what's your process? I mean, it really just means that the list grows. As soon as the class is revealed, I go into my lists. I add guys that that get enshrined. Like I said, the last few years, I've been lucky enough to have already collected those guys long enough. Uh, I've seen them from their rookie year through their enshrinement. So uh, I kind of saw that they were going to be Hall of Famers, and I try to uh, be proactive and pick them up when I can. Uh, but there are certain guys that I just didn't get around to buying. Like a couple years ago, Drew Pearson. Hall of Fame wide receiver for the Cowboys. I didn't have his autograph, but, uh, you know, before his enshrinement, he was a 10 or $15 auto. And, uh, now he's like maybe a 15 to $20 auto. So it didn't really shoot up. I'm not in any hurry to go out and get one. I still haven't picked one up yet, but I just know that it's there. So, um, eventually I'll get one. I know that the the cost isn't going to skyrocket, but then there are guys that you don't think of that, that get into the hall of fame, uh, like a Zach Thomas, who, you know, I, was an advocate for for years. I thought he was a great linebacker. I think he was overshadowed a little bit by guys like Ray Lewis and Brian Erlacher. And uh, I was really hoping he got in. His cards were dirt cheap for many years. Uh, maybe not right at first, because I think he only had a couple autos at first. And then recently he's had, uh, with Panini kind of flooding the market as they do, the cost of his autograph kind of went down a little bit. But then I saw right away when he got enshrined, his cards jumped a pretty good bit. So Definitely glad to already have guys like that in the PC, so I don't have to pay that premium. And like I said, I try to be proactive when I know a guy is going to get in soon. Um, a guy like Tory Holt, who I have you know several autos of that you can get dirt cheap right now. You just don't know are his cards going to jump. So that's part of the fun of the speculation is who you can anticipate getting in next and try to get ahead of it, and not in a in a sense to flip it or anything like that. It's just uh, if I know I can buy it now for ten bucks. Obviously, I'm going to pick it up now instead of paying 40 later on. So when uh, Tory Holt's a good one, obviously being a Colts fan over here, it kills me that I'm still waiting on Reggie Wayne to get in. Can you maybe who comes to your mind first, like the top three players that you think should be in the Hall of Fame right now? um that aren't and every year goes by you just still can't believe that those players aren't in the hall of fame who comes to your mind first one that pops into my mind right away is devin hester i know he's only <laughs> had a couple years but the guy is the single greatest uh return man of all time period it doesn't matter what position you play if you are the greatest at your position in my opinion you should be first ballot you know i, I don't think it's even an argument uh, i would love if the deliberations in the hall of fame voting room were were public so you could hear the arguments against them 
because I really don't see how you could you could say that Devin Hester is not a Hall of Famer. He'll get in eventually, but you know to say that he's not first ballot to me is is kind of ridiculous. And then there is that log jam at receiver where you have guys like Reggie Wayne, Torrey Holt, uh, Andre Johnson, who I think will get in, uh, Heinz Ward, who I think will get in and should get in. Uh, guy that I hated watching for many years, but you know I have a lot of respect for his game. His Super toughness. Bowl MVP. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So guys like that. And then, like I said, I like to advocate for for positions that don't really get recognized. So I'm a huge Lorenzo Neal fan, fullback. Mm. If you look at who he blocked for and how many thousand yard backs he blocked for, uh, I really think he's up there, if not the greatest fullback of all time. You know, he he's right up there, top three. So I'd love to see him get in. You don't really hear his name called at all. Guys like, you know, you know, there's a, a debate in the Hall of Fame group chat that I was in uh, uh, a little while ago. And they were saying, is Matthew Slater from the Patriots a Hall of Famer? And a lot of people said yes. And I said, not before Steve Tasker from the Bills. Uh, he was Matthew Slater before Matthew Slater. So there's guys like that that really don't get recognized that I wish would, would start getting uh, talked about a little bit more. And maybe when they become uh, like members of the senior committee, they'll get in. But, you know, with football injuries and CTE and all this stuff, you know, you hate to see a guy get in. Uh, when he can barely remember, you know, his own name. It's sad to say, but I mean, it happens. The Devin Hester call out's a perfect call out. And especially um, being a Colts fan, watching the Super Bowl. And it's like the one thing you you got to do is not kick it to him. And on the first play of the game, he takes it to the house. So biggest stage there is, and he's doing what he's doing. So I am pro Devin Hester in the Hall of Fame. And I'm sure all the uh, Bears fans out there are giving their thumbs up to that as well. Um, I'm curious, just in this journey of collecting these Hall of Fame players, getting the, these autographs, like what are maybe some of your favorite sets and favorite products that you, if you if you had all your Hall of Fame cards spread out, maybe would be like the most consistent throughout? Uh, yeah, like uh, Fleer Greats of the Game came out in 2000 and 2004. Uh, 2000 was on card. 2004 was one of the first uses of the clear sticker. I am pro silver sticker uh, all the way, but in that case, with that set, I think it really, really looked nice. Um, you'll see a lot of uh, leaf certified fabric of the game, mm -hmm. which is that, that I'm currently building from 2003. You know, one of the things I love about that set is you flip the card over and there's a picture of the game worn jersey on the back, which was something that, you know, there's a lot of questions these days about where jerseys come from and the authenticity, but it's kind of hard to question it when they have the actual photo of the jersey on the back, which was a really cool little uh, thing that Don Russ and Leaf did back then. You know, you look at 2006 and 2007 National Treasures football, two of my all-time favorite sets. You just see cards from guys that you really didn't see cards from. I know like Red Grange and Bronco Nagurski had cards in like 2002 SP legendary cuts, which for hall of fame collectors is like the Mecca of, you know, cut autos, 2006 national treasures kind of gave you some, some memorabilia cards of guys that never had it before. Uh, 2007 was the same way. They have a, a very extensive cut auto collection in there. Lots of patches from guys like Jim Parker, uh, offensive tackle for the Colts, Dick Nitrain lane. Who's another one of my favorite all time, uh, greats from the 50s and 60s you know you just didn't see stuff like that 2007 leaf limited you know as far as like current players from 2005 uh donruss gridiron gear i think has to this day is the best patch set that's ever been released 
Um, the checklist isn't the best. They had a lot of uh, like rookie stuff in there, but the the veteran game you stuff in there. I mean, you have all kinds of logos, and the best thing about it is right on the card. It'll tell you it's from the nameplate, it's from the the laundry tag or the logo. So there's no doubt of you know with patch swapping and stuff like that. The the uh, patch swap epidemic that we went through. They, they kind of leave no doubt when you see it right on the card that it's part of the logo or part of the number. So that's another one of my favorites. And then getting into the Panini stuff, I'm a huge fan of Immaculate and Impeccable. I think both of those are, are some of their best cards that they put out. I can hear everyone on the other side uh, saving searches and taking notes. <laughs> now I'm checking out some of these uh, sets that you mentioned. All right, we got to get into your story. I got I got to make sure I hear this straight from the horse's mouth. Uh, I remember you must have posted something about your, this Ray Lewis one of one story a while back. I don't know if it, w- it was when you got the card or when you discovered it, but I remember seeing it and like my mind being blown. And then the reason we're talking today is because I posted something and you responded and it triggered that memory. And I was like, all right, well, we just need to talk about it on the podcast. And so here we are. So You've got a crazy Ray Lewis one of one story. I'd love for you to share it. The floor is yours. Uh, absolutely. This is a long story. I hope it's not boring for you guys. It's filled with a lot of ups and downs. Uh, but the story starts uh, in 2000. Uh, Ray Lewis, as many people know, was on trial for a double murder in 1999. Not going to get into all that. But now's not the time for that. But he lost all of his endorsements. The, the NFL world turned on him. And really, Baltimore was the only place that people had his back. So he lost, you know, everything. So card companies took notice and didn't want him in their products. As a defensive player uh, from 96 to 99, he didn't really have a ton of card selection, but uh, he was in a few products here and there. In 2000, he had one single card, and that was in uh, Fleer Showcase. So Fleer Showcase had a base version. They have a legacy version numbered out of 20. And they have a one of one masterpiece. So since 2000, when I knew this card existed, it was a dream card for me. It was, in every sense of the word, my holy grail. I know that term gets tossed around a lot, but that was my one card that uh, if I could never have another card in my life, that's the one card that I wanted. So for years, I think it was like maybe 18 years it took for me to find the legacy parallel numbered out of 20. And when I when I was able to get that one, I thought to myself, man, this is, it doesn't get any better. This is you know, as close as I'm ever going to get. I'm never even going to see the one of one. I'll never actually even see a picture of it. You, know, you could Google it. There's nothing on the internet. So yeah, it was really tough. And you know, I'd love to learn the story from someone that worked at FLIR on how Ray Lewis actually ended up in this set because he was never in any other products from Tops, Upper Deck, FLIR, even like Collector's Edge and stuff like that. He just wasn't on the checklist. So I'd really like to know how he slipped into this one. But 2000 was a career-defining year for Ray Lewis. And for him to only have one card, uh, to me, it's just a very unique story. I don't know anything else like it in sports where a player had arguably the the season that put them on the map and and made them an icon, and they only have one card to show for it. So, you know, after the Ravens win the Super Bowl, Ray Lewis, traditional MVP, would say, I'm going to Disney World. Uh, they didn't ask Ray Lewis to do that. They had Trent Dilfer do it instead. Uh, he wasn't on the Wheaties box. So it's really intriguing that, you know, nobody wanted to represent this guy as the face of their company. And 
despite all of that hate towards him, he went on to have the best season of his career and proved everybody wrong and, and hoisted the Lombardi at the end of the year. So fast forward, uh, I'm building my Ray Lewis collection over the years. Uh, like I said, I was able to get the legacy number to 20. A couple of years after that, I was able to make deals for, you know, some of his rarest 90s parallels, like the 97 PMG red and green. I was able to acquire those, but still always held out hope that that one of one masterpiece was going to surface. So one day I'm on eBay. I see a Ray Lewis 1998 Bowman Chrome anniversary refractor numbered out of five. Uh, one of my top ones from the 90s. So I messaged the seller, try to work out a deal. And he says, you know, I'd like to let the auction ride. I don't know what it's worth. Have no idea. So I'm just going to let it go. So I waited until the day before the auction ended, asked them again, hey, look, I got to have this card. What, what will you do to end the auction? And he's like, well, you know, throw out an offer. I'll let you know. So, uh, you know, I let him know what I was willing to pay for it. And he agreed. He ended the auction. And, you know, I paid for the card, struck up a conversation with this guy off of eBay and come to find out, you know, I asked him, hey, you know, this is a super rare Ray Lewis card. Never even seen one before. Do you have anything else like it? And he's like, well, actually, yeah, I'm, I'm a huge Ray Lewis collector, which kind of blew me away because there aren't too many of us out there. So I was very intrigued. I asked him if he was on social media. He said, no, he's never, never, ever posted any of his cards. So I start asking him, I'm like, what kind of stuff do you have? And he's like, well, why don't you send me your want list and I'll let you know what I have. So not knowing what this guy actually had, I sent him probably like a top 10, nothing crazy, no one of ones or anything like that. And later that night, he got back to me and said, yeah, I have all of those. And my jaw dropped. I mean, there's, these are cards that I've been searching for for you know, 15, 20 years and never seen. And this guy's saying he has all of them. And then he sent me a picture of all of them right there. So we worked out a deal within like 24 hours uh, for those first 10 cards. And then, you know, obviously I start asking him, what else do you have? And he starts sending me a bunch of pictures. You know, again, my jaws just dropped. He's got some of the rarest Ray Lewis cards in existence. And I said, hey, I'm just throwing this out there. My all-time top one is uh, 2000 Fleer Showcase Masterpiece One of One. Do you have it? And he said, uh, I'm not sure. I'll get back to you. And I'm just like mind blown. Like your collection is that awesome to where you don't even know if you have the one. So sure enough, he gets back to me that same day and, and shows me a picture of it. And I was just in awe, you know, a card that I was looking for for 21 years, didn't know, you know, if it even existed, I mean, I could have been thrown away in the trash or, you know, with Brady having a rookie that year, I don't think there's many unopened boxes left. So I was pretty confident that it had been pulled, but no idea where in the world this card was. And now I've located it. Um, so immediately I, uh, I try not to get too excited. I, I let the guy know, Hey, look, you know, I, I need to have this card. What, what do you need for it? And he says, well, it's not really for sale right now. I'm, I'm not really moving anything other than like some duplicates. So yeah, I'm not really sure. And he said, I wouldn't even know where to start as far as value. So couple days pass. I get back to him and I'm like, man, I've been thinking about this card ever since I said, you know, can we please just at least talk about it? And he's like, yeah, I mean, you can, you can throw me out an offer. So I immediately go to eBay. Of course, there's no comps on anything like it. There was a Jerry Rice listed for 10,000, but no bites. Obviously it probably been listed forever. So I consulted a few of my buddies on Instagram that are nineties and early two thousands collectors. I asked them their opinions on, Hey, what is this thing worth? 
And most of them got back to me with some, some low, in my opinion, some low figures. And what I did was I had about five numbers. I took out the lowest one and the highest one. I screenshotted them. I sent them to this guy and I said, look, these guys are serious 90s and 2000s collectors. Here's what they think. I'll double what they think. I'll send you double. And it was probably stupid on my part, but you know, I couldn't let this card get past me. So the guy's like, wow. I mean, they're literally shocked, speechless. I don't know what to say. I never thought in a million years that this card was worth that much. So, you know, I'm like, all right, well, let me know. You know, I'm very serious about the card. I want you to know that, you know, I'm ready to buy it right now. So uh, a couple of days go by and I get a message and he goes, look, I'll be honest with you. Uh, one of the big auction houses just posted something on their Twitter a couple of days ago asking for people to show off one of ones. And I posted the card on Twitter and my inbox just blew up. And he's like, I'm getting all kinds of offers for it. He's like, I figured because you reached out first, I'd let you know that, you know, you have some competition. So I'm like, okay, um, you know, that sucks, but you know, what's it going to take? And he's like, well, I have an offer for a little bit more than yours. Are you willing to go higher? Yep. Go, go higher. And, uh, he's like, all right, I'll get back to you. And then a bidding war ensued and it probably lasted three, four days, if I remember correctly. And I was actually just getting ready to leave for vacation. And I said, look, man, I really don't want this to linger into my vacation. What can we do to get this done? And he kept going back to the other guy and, or may, may have been more than one guy for all I know. And he's like, look, this is the number. And I said, you know what? I thought about it for, for several hours. And I just said, there's no way I can spend that much money on this card as much as I want it. Uh, I just can't justify that. You know, I'm kind of waving the white flag. I give up and it crushed me. You know, the guy goes, all right, well, I, I appreciate it. And I'm going to reach back out. There's plenty more deals that we have in the future, but you know, unfortunately I'm going to have to, to sell this one to somebody else. So, you know, I was pretty depressed about that. You know, I went into my vacation kind of down and, you know, I had to kind of tell the wife that, you know, I was not feeling good or something like that. So she wouldn't catch on to me, but yeah, I was just, I thought, man, I just, I had it in my grasp. I was that close and, and just missed out. And, uh, a couple of days into my vacation, uh, I, I messaged the guy and I said, look, I just want to tell you, I appreciate you, you know, number one, giving me an opportunity to even make an offer on the card. You didn't have to do that. And, uh, all the other deals that we've done, you've been super easy to work with. You know, I just, I just want to say, I appreciate it. And he's like, yeah, no problem. You know, these things happen. Like I said, I'm sure you'll, you'll get plenty more nice cards from me in the future. So the next day, uh, I have a message from this guy saying, do you still want the card? And I'm like, don't mess with me right now. And I said, what do you mean? Do you still want it? You sold it. He goes, well, you know, the deal fell through. We weren't able to, to come to terms on an agreement. It's available if you want it for this price. And I really had to think about it because it was more than what I was willing to pay for it. Uh, in my opinion, it was it was more than quadruple of what the market would actually think that it's worth. But again, you know, this is the one card that I want the most in the world. So uh, I, I agreed to it. I said yes. Um, and without getting into the, the details of what fell through uh, out of respect for the other collector, I was just happy that he was giving me the opportunity and I wasn't going to say no this time. So two days after vacation, come home, get the card. It's, it, you know, the, the pinnacle of my collecting journey. You know, I have the number one card I've ever wanted in my hands right now. It's all downhill from here. So everyone lives happily ever after, right? <laughs> no. You know, I, I posted the card. 
got a lot of people congratulating me and everyone's, you know, I'm on my victory lap and, uh, you know, I just get done my victory lap and I get a message from a buddy at Merino collector on Instagram, who's one of the people that I consulted on the price to begin with. And he says, Hey man, I think you need to check this out over on blowout, uh, forums. There's someone claiming to have your card. So I wasn't a member on blowout. So I signed up real quick. I messaged this guy. I'm like, Hey, um, I'm not sure what you're trying to pull here, but you know, I'm the owner of this card. I have it in my hand right now. And he goes, that's impossible because I bought this card back in 2000, sent it to my buddy who was a Ray Lewis fan and he's had it ever since and he's never sold it. And he has it in his hand right now. So I'm like, this is a scam. I'm telling everybody like, don't believe this guy. I'm like posting pictures with a newspaper next to it, like showing the date. Like I definitely own this card. It's mine. And uh, luckily the guy from Blowout was was very cooperative. He was able to kind of work through some details with me and he he did show me proof that he had the card. So I immediately start seeking out advice from from guys on Instagram. You know, is there a possibility that one of these is fake? You know, I've often heard of backdoor cards from card companies when they when they go bankrupt. So I didn't know what to think. My first thought was I need to send this in for authentication. I send it out to BGS. They sent it back and said, we no longer grade or authenticate uh, Masterpiece One of Ones, which I had no idea. The Jerry Rice was on eBay in a BGS slab, but I guess it was slabbed a long time ago. And they said with all of the, the counterfeits, they just stopped doing it. So as I'm talking to this guy on Blowout, he's like, yeah, my buddy's going to send his in to PSA, but he doesn't really collect cards. So I'm kind of the middleman for him. So I'm getting ready to send it off. So I jet to the nearest uh, card store that was willing to send mine in for me sent it in, paid for the express. And about a week later, I find out that mine is indeed authentic and it graded a PSA seven. So I'm back on cloud nine. I'm like, you know what? Even if this other guy has his card, he's going to send it in. And unfortunately it's going to come back fake, uh, counterfeit. So I know that I have the authentic version of the card, you know, I'm back on cloud nine. So then a few weeks after that, I get a message from the guy again, and he sends me a screenshot of a slabbed authentic PSA eight Ray Lewis masterpiece, one of one from the same set. And again, from the highest point on the mountain, I'm back down in the valley again. Couldn't believe that there was two authentic versions of this card. Later on, I I learned that, you know, it does happen and there are other cards that are uh, out in the public that people are aware that they're two copies, but at the time I didn't know. So Again, I go right into negotiation mode. I'm, I'm asking the guy, look, you know, I went through hell to get this one card thinking that it was the only one in existence. You know, what do I have to do to get this card from your buddy? And it was a pretty short negotiation. He put me in touch with his friend. His friend called me and we had a, a pretty quick conversation. And he's like, look, I've heard your story. And to me, you know, this card belongs with you. I'm willing to work out a deal. Let's, you know, you, you throw out an offer. So. I did some more research on, you know, now that this is actually two of two instead of one of one, obviously the price is, is significantly lower than what I paid for the first one. And uh, I threw out a number, he accepted right away and, and I had the card in my hands, you know, a couple of days later. So I'm now the proud owner of two Ray Lewis one of one masterpieces from 2000 Fleer Showcase. I'm not sure any card stories get better than that. The highs, the lows, the persistence, the pursuit. I think everyone's mind is blown right now. The fact that two copies 
can actually exist. Here's the the follow up to all of this. Is there one that you prefer over the other? Do you look at them as kind of the same? Like when you're you're pulling these cards out of your collection, you're kind of looking at them. Yeah, one's a seven, one's eight. I'm sure that probably doesn't make much of a difference. But how do you rank them in your mind? Well, it's tough to say because I've asked many collectors: Is there any way to tell if both of these cards were pack pulled? Was one of them pack pulled and the other one was like a back door? Uh, did they have one in case the one of one was damaged and someone you know asked for a, a replacement? Like, I, I really would love to know the story from someone that is familiar, someone maybe that worked for Fleer back then that can tell me. As far as the attachment, I think the seven is actually more meaningful to me because it took me 21 years to find it. And then it took less than six months to find the other one, which is is crazy. So yeah, I'd say I'm a little bit more attached to the seven. Uh, somebody actually suggested that I burn one of them so that there really is only one copy, uh, but I would never do that. I don't have the heart to do it. No. So I think there's just for everyone listening, there's so, in that story, there is so much that we can all learn and I'm just going to leave it at that. But before we get out of here, I'd love, I'm sure that's probably at, on your, your uh, George Washington spot of your Mount Rushmore of your PC, but maybe share what are, what are maybe three other cards that are, when you think about your collection are your um, go-tos? Well, from just from the Ray Lewis PC, the, the PMG green from Seven is another one that, you know, I've never seen another one in the wild since I bought it a few years ago. Um, it was another tough negotiation. And, you know, if I can leave, you know, a young collector with any piece of advice, it's, um, you know, if you're looking for a certain card or a certain set, just reach out and message people. Mm. Um, I've acquired some of the, the craziest cards in my collection just by simply sending out a message saying, hey, this is what I'm looking for. Do you have it or do you know anyone that does? And uh, sure enough, uh, the, the PMG guy had probably 30 or 40 listed from the set, but no Ray Lewis. I messaged him. I told him what I was looking for. And he says, yeah, I'm not planning on listing it, but yeah, I can work something out. Turns out the guy lived in Maryland. We met up uh, in person, did the deal. Uh, super easy to deal with. And uh, yeah, just you'd be surprised what you can find just by messaging someone. You never know what they're going to say. The worst they can say is no. So yeah, the PMGs. Uh, I have an impeccable part of the shoulder patch. The Ravens have some of the craziest patch cards because they have mm -hmm. so many colors in there. And it's an on-card auto. As far as my Hall of Fame PC, top three would be, uh, I have a John Elway Immaculate from, uh, it's called Immaculate Moments. And it's from the dive in the first Super Bowl against the Packers, his first Super Bowl win. My favorite play in NFL history, hands down. You have a guy that will do anything to get that first down for his team and to win that championship. And you can see on the card, just the grit in his face of the determination um, at his age and his injuries and all to get that first down um, was just a play that I'll never forget. Uh, number two would probably be a Barry Sanders immaculate on-card auto with three-color patch, um, the gold foil around the patch, the picture of Barry Sanders. Um, he's one of my all-time favorite players. So that one, and then number one is easily hands down my Jim Thorpe, uh, 2006 National Treasures Charter Class uh, Cut Auto with a piece of game-worn jacket numbered out of four. It's a card that, you know, another one of those grail cards for any Hall of Fame collector that never thought I'd own a Jim Thorpe, but it popped up one day and I was able to make a negotiation real quick for it. And again, the guy lived in Maryland, actually, and I think that's the only reason why he struck a deal with me was because 
uh, with COVID and everything, he was afraid to mail it across the country and have it get lost or damaged. So he lived about 35 minutes away from me, went down on a Saturday morning, picked it up. And yeah, that's, that's one that I never thought I would own as a, as a Hall of Fame collector. But believe it or not, there's actually cards that are way more uh, rare and expensive than that. So still on the journey, still have lots that I want to cross off. So uh, if, you've, if you've heard about any of the sets that I've collected, uh, definitely reach out and uh, let me know what you got. Curious to see if you can help me finish out these sets. Shoot this man a message, a passionate collector. Tim, this was a ton of fun. You can find him on Instagram at Charm City Tim. Man, we'll have to get you back on. I feel like we could have gone uh, many, many more uh, minutes on this one. Um, I learned a ton. Hopefully everyone out there did too. Thanks so much for jumping on, man. Uh, it was a pleasure. It was a real honor to, to be on here. I'm a weekly listener and I would, I'd love to come back on anytime. Always enjoy those collector-driven conversations. So much passion. I appreciate Tim for taking some time to talk about his collecting his collection, and all the stories along the way. Go follow my man at Charm City. Tim, take care of yourself. Take care of others around you. We'll be back. More stacking slabs on the other side. Peace out. Peace out.